1: those people would be deterred from providing material support if suddenly they were caught up in the United States' jurisdictional remit. And I think that that risk is so high and the United States has extradition treaties with almost every country around the world that it would deter their material support to the Donetsk and Luhansk people's militias. And if the United States wanted to impose, let's say, secondary sanctions or secondary designations on these people, it wouldn't have the resources to do so. It would take too long. Whereas I think the FTO designation casts a wide net and it ensures that a lot of people who would otherwise not be sanctioned are caught up within the United States' jurisdictional authority.
2: I'm Natalie Orpet, Executive Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 2nd, 2022. Last week, we published a piece by Lawfare's legal fellow, Serafine Danani, called The Case for Designating the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Militias as Foreign Terrorist Organizations. The article considered whether the Russian-backed militias operating in the Ukrainian provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk can be properly designated as FTOs, and whether they should be. I sat down with Serafine And with Lawfare's editor in chief, Benjamin Wittes, who has also been giving this topic a lot of thought. We discuss the legal requirements for FTO designation, how such a designation would interact with the existing sanctions regime the United States has imposed in response to Russia's war in Ukraine, and what impact FTO designations might have on the conflict. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 2nd, 2022. Should the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Militias be designated as foreign terrorist organizations? So, Sarafine, last week on Lawfare, we published a piece by you entitled The Case for Designating the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Militias as Foreign Terrorist Organizations. And this is an article in which you analyze the proposal that the U.S., give this designation, Foreign Terrorist Organization, or FTO, to these two militias um, that are currently in Ukraine, um, or actually in regions that Russia is claiming it has annexed. So I want to start by just asking you, what are these militias? How did they come to be? And sort of how do they fit into the ongoing conflict in Ukraine?
1: So the Donetsk and Luhansk people's militias were formed on the heels of Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea back in 2014. They were separatist groups that first took over government buildings and then declared themselves the de facto people's government and then gradually called the Donetsk and Luhansk regions the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics or DPR and LPR. They were also backed by Russia. This has been something that the United States has also confirmed. Uh, They refer to the groups as Russian backed. They refer to the areas as Russian controlled. And when referring to the DPR and LPR in official government documents, the United States government uses quotation marks to reinforce that the areas do not have a claim to sovereignty.
2: And the thrust of your piece is looking at this possibility of designating these two militias as foreign terrorist organizations. So what exactly does that designation mean, and what is the legal authority behind it?
1: So an FTO designation is a tool that the United States can deploy against a foreign organization that has engaged in terrorism or terrorist activities that threatens the national security under of the United States it has this authority to designate an organization as an FTO under Section 19 of the Immigration and Nationality Act. Now, what's key here is that the FTO designation implicates the United States' material support statute. And what that does is it gives the United States broad jurisdictional authority to prosecute not only U.S. citizens or residents that provide material support to A designated FTO, but also foreign nationals and foreign companies that provide material support to a designated FTO. So the risk of getting caught up in the United States' jurisdictional remit deters foreign actors from providing material support to FTOs. In this way, an FTO designation plays a critical role in curtailing support for terrorists, makes it incredibly difficult for them to operate and ultimately pressures the group out of the terrorism business altogether.
2: Okay. Let's, let's talk a little bit broadly about the FTO designation. So Ben, I know that you've studied FTOs um, for quite some time. Can you give us some examples of previous designations? You know, what sorts of groups have received this designation in the past and, and under what circumstances? And in particular, has this happened in the context of an ongoing conflict as we're seeing right now in Ukraine?
0: Yeah. So the designation authority uh, and the accompanying material support statute are both creatures of the mid 1990s they were passed after the Oklahoma City bombing which of course was a domestic attack by a domestic group but uh for constitutional reasons this statute is focused on foreign groups in a bit of a non sequitur from Oklahoma City the Authority is uh, broad and extremely powerful, and it has become the kind of workhorse statute of the United States in nearly all criminal counterterrorism matters, particularly in the years since 9-11. So this is the statute that makes it a crime to provide aid or go train with Al-Qaeda at a terrorist training camp. It's the statute that means that if you send money to Hamas or uh, Hezbollah, you can be locked up for that. It is accompanied by uh, extremely broad definitions so that the material support uh, that you can provide can be anything from your own labor to money, to materiel of any kind, even to uh, propaganda work to the extent that you're working at the direction of the group or for the group. And so particularly in combination with the conspiracy statute, it has done just an enormous amount of the heavy lifting in U.S. anti-terrorism policy over the years. Has it been used in active conflict situations? Yeah, absolutely. There is, for example, Hezbollah, uh, which is, of course, the uh, Shia uh, militia group in the south of Lebanon uh, that has been in, you know, periodic Consistent conflict with Israel, uh, along Israel's northern border for, uh, really since its creation in the 1980s and or since, since Hezbollah's formation. Uh, and Hezbollah was one of the early organizations designated as a foreign terrorist organization under the statute. And that limits people's ability to engage with Hezbollah. So. There are other examples of mid-conflict designations, including the Kurdish groups, you know, fighting, uh, Turkey are generally designated. And there are other examples too. For example, the Haqqani network, uh, was, which was one of the Taliban's allied, uh, components was designated during the period of the, it still is designated, but was designated during the period of the conflict in, in Afghanistan, along with a bunch of Iraqi groups uh, that we were fighting with in Iraq. So mid-conflict designation is not a an obstacle.
2: Okay, so let's talk through the application of, of what this would look like. Uh, Sarafine, you spent a bunch of time in your article looking in particular at the legality of designating these two militias as FTOs, but it's actually not that straightforward of a question. Um, So can you just talk through how the statute would apply in the case of these two militias?
1: Sure. So there are three requirements that have to be met in order to designate the Donetsk and Luhansk people's militias as FTOs. The first is that the group has to be a foreign organization. The second is that the group has to have engaged in terrorist activities or terrorism, and that these activities have to threaten the national security of the United States. So for the first prong, Ben just mentioned Hezbollah. We have a case here where there is a a group that's been labeled an FTO, that has received funding from a state that is basically backed by Iran. And that's, I think, what the Donetsk and Luhansk people's militias are here as well. Much of their uh, founding uh, conception story is similar to Hezbollah in that certainly they were made up of separatist fighters in the Donbas region. But there are a number of interviews that have recently come out of Russian soldiers describing how their commanders had them cross over into Ukraine to join forces with the separatists, were instructed to remove the insignia from their uniforms and trucks before joining forces. Russian volunteers took advantage of porous borders that President Putin knew about and also joined forces with the separatists. And beyond human capital, Russia has also provided material support in the form of weaponry. And so The Donetsk and Luhansk people's militias really fit squarely within this definition of being a foreign organization. They are like Hezbollah in that they have received backing from the Russian government. In the second prong, they've also engaged in terrorist activities. Secretary of State John Kerry has made very clear that Malaysia Airline Flight 17 that was shot down was shot down by... Uh, Russian-backed separatists, which are these groups, and the United Nations and the State Department have concluded that the groups have engaged in things like abduction, torture, unlawful detention, sexual violence. All of these activities fit squarely within what constitutes quote-unquote terrorist activities under the United States' statute. And then finally, President Biden has said that the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk people's militia's occupation of the region undermines international law, threatens the peace, stability and sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. And all of this together threatens the national security and foreign policy of the United States. So both that these are foreign organizations that have engaged in terrorism and terrorist activities, and that these activities threaten the national security of the United States makes them ripe for FTO designations.
0: Yeah, so just to add to that, I don't think there's a serious question as to whether they are legally designatable. Uh, the statute, uh, there is a judicial review component of the statute. So if they were to be designated and they wanted to challenge the designation, uh, there is a review procedure in the D.C. Circuit for them to do so. That said, as Sarafin describes, it's not really a close call. They are a foreign group that has engaged in terrorism and that is actively and illegally participating in a war that the United States is supporting the other side of. So it's sort of manifestly against the foreign policy and uh, security interests of the United States. I think the real question here is a prudential question of whether designation is a good idea. I think that the legal question is much less interesting. And, you know, the Biden administration so far has not done this. It's not because they're unaware of the the possibility or the option of doing it. And I, I don't think that's for legal reasons. I think that's for Uh, as a result of prudential considerations.
2: Yeah, let's talk about those. But before we get into what the prudential reasons against it might be. Let's talk a little bit more about what this would accomplish. So Serafine, you mentioned before, that the main tool that this would provide is the ability of the Department of Justice to prosecute individuals. So that's not something that currently exists, although there are a lot of measures in place to try to Deter these activities and to penalize individuals for being involved with them. And those have come in the form of sanctions. So, what does this accomplish that has not already been accomplished or could not be accomplished through the current sanctions regime or building upon that, which already exists?
1: I think sanctions have been necessary and sanctions are also economic in nature. But what sets FTO designations apart. Is that they have this legal element to them, that they provide broad jurisdictional authority to the United States. And they shouldn't be seen as a function of sanctions authority. They're kind of their own standalone tool that the United States can add to the toolbox. And something that you wouldn't get with sanctions that you could get with FTO designations is deterrence. Deterrence of foreign actors that are not being caught up in America's sanctions policy. So I'm thinking of the smaller fish that the United States right now just cannot fry. It's its sanctions right now are against some um, important Russian oligarchs and their family members. But what about Russians and Ukrainians that provide material support to the Donetsk and Luhansk people's militias or the areas in the Donbass that travel freely around in this world whose lives depend on international travel. Those people would be deterred from providing material support if suddenly they were caught up in the United States' jurisdictional remit. And I think that that risk is so high. And the United States has extradition treaties with almost every country around the world that it would deter their material support to the Donetsk and Luhansk people's militias. And if the United States wanted to impose, let's say, secondary sanctions or secondary designations on these people, it, it just it wouldn't have the resources to do so. It would take too long. Whereas I think the FTO designation casts a wide net and it it ensures that a lot of people who would otherwise not be sanctioned are caught up within the United States' jurisdictional authority.
0: Let me offer a couple of specific examples of where I think this may be very helpful. So imagine that you have, first of all, the Ukrainian criminal justice system in trying to prosecute, imagine that it retakes a whole lot of territory and that it starts trying to think about prosecuting war crimes. This is a just mammoth undertaking, and it is going to wildly overload its criminal authorities and its its criminal justice system uh, and its investigative capacity. Now, we don't have jurisdiction over war crimes committed elsewhere as a general matter. But if somebody signs up to be a torturer in, uh, for one of these fictitious governments, and we have them designated, you could imagine uh, the FBI showing up and treating some of these cases that are actually really important, but the Ukrainians might not have the resources to take on under the material support statute. That would be a bit of an odd fit, but it's one that would be available. The second really important component is that a number of high-profile Russian uh, figures, including some celebrities, have really, uh, gone out of their way to go to these regions and, you know, visibly show support for these groups. And, uh, this would, depending precisely on how they did it, this would make that a crime under U.S. law, and it would prevent them thereby from, say, traveling to the south of France to vacation. And so I think, you know, Sarafin's point about just creating a broad, uh, jurisdictional criminal hook for U.S. involvement is a potentially very powerful instrument, both by way of punishing people who, you know, may have no idea they're tripping into U.S. authority, but whom the Ukrainians may need help prosecuting and to, you know, give something to think about to people who want to impress President Putin by visiting uh, these two uh, supposed regions of Russia.
2: But what exactly would those people need to do? Because presumably just setting foot on the territory would not be sufficient to violate the statute. So what exactly are we looking for in terms of conduct?
0: Well, so... Just setting foot on the territory is probably not good enough, but if you do anything on behalf of one of those groups, if you speak on behalf of one of those groups, if you give a charity concert on behalf of one of those groups, if you give anything of value, including non-tangible uh, value, uh, you have crossed a line. And if you travel in order to do that, if you plan to do that and take steps, you've conspired to do it. And, you know, a, a lot of, and I say this with no joy, um, you know, a lot of Muslim Americans have uh, found out over the last 22, 23 years, just how broad these statutes are. And I I, I do not like the over-reliance on them, but I do think they are extremely powerful tools, mostly in a good way, uh, though they can be abused. And we have an opportunity here to use them in ways that I think could be quite powerful and quite different from the way we've used them in the past.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
2: It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's betterhelp h e l p. So the the key difference though that occurs to me with the example you just gave, which I agree is a really an example of abuse in this case is Of course, the people who are likely to fall into this category are not located within the United States. So there is extraterritoriality associated with this statute. But the question of actually hailing people into court for prosecution is a less obvious one. Is that something that is, I guess, in the first instance, is that something we've seen be successful in the past with other associated FTO designations? And is it something that's realistic here?
0: Yeah, so after 9/11 the Congress changed the law actually in response to the Guantanamo problem, right? Where where you had people from Yemen or Saudi Arabia or the elsewhere in the Gulf traveling to Afghanistan to uh train with and fight with the Taliban, right? And we I had no criminal jurisdiction over those people which is one of the reasons the Guantanamo problem developed and Congress fixed that or depending on your perspective cha- fixed that or or created this new environment after 2 I believe 2004 where they made it extraterritorial so now if you are a Saudi national who travels to Afghanistan Uh, to take training from Al-Qaeda to fight on behalf of the Taliban, you have violated the material support law, even if you couldn't identify the United States on a map and have never been there. And mostly the statute has not been used that way, but it has sometimes. My view is that uh, there is a Pretty good policy debate to be had whether that degree of extraterritorial criminal jurisdiction is a, is a good idea. But a- as long as we have it, it seems to me that a Russian who goes to, uh, Ukraine to provide material support to the Luhansk People's Militia, uh, or, or a Ukrainian for that matter who does it, Is no different from a Gulf Arab who goes to, you know, the Al Farouk training camp. Now, I agree with you that the universe of such people who are likely to end up in U.S. custody is in the short term very small because they're not traveling from the United States. They're not returning to the United States. And we don't have boots on the ground in a fashion that is going to cause us to capture them, which is what happened in, you know, in Afghanistan in, in 2002. However, I could really foresee a situation in which the Ukrainians capture large numbers of people and actually want to put a bunch of them on trial, but just don't have the resources to do it and say, Hey, U.S., do you have jurisdiction over any of these? Are there any of these that you can take off our plates? And I think we should probably be using our criminal statutes in ways that allow the maximum number of answers to such questions to be yes.
2: So the example that you gave, though, sounds to me like you're saying that given that we're in the middle of an ongoing conflict in in my hypothetical, if these if they were Russians or if they were people fighting on behalf of Russia, then I believe the detention authority that Ukraine would have for holding them would be under the laws of war. Is it even legal for Ukrainians to uh, shift jurisdiction to the U.S. for criminal prosecution in that context?
0: So, it's an interesting question and. I am not certain of the specific answer to it. I do know that Ukraine has the authority to prosecute, you know, prisoners of war. Some of these people by the way, it may not consider prisoners of war because to the extent they're not Russian military, uh Ukraine may just regard them as uh local criminals. Uh after all, this is an area that internationally is acknowledged to be Ukraine sovereign. And so you know these people can can cosplay as a as a state and now as a region of russia because russia purports to have annexed it but from a ukrainian perspective they are simply local criminals who are defying the state and so the question may be a little bit more acute with respect to uh russian soldiers um, but I don't think those are the people who are most likely to be at issue.
2: Okay. So I think we've hit on a couple of challenges in terms of how this might play out. But, Seraphine, in your article, you also spoke about some of the policy downsides uh, that may exist or that some critics of this idea might identify. Can you talk us through those?
1: Sure. So, one of the first. Downsides, I would say, is it seems like the United States has the power to uh, impose secondary designations on individuals that provide material support to the Donetsk and Luhansk people's militias through the sanctions we already have in place. The United States has not practiced this authority, and so why would it then prosecute foreign nationals if the Donetsk and Luhansk people's militias are designated as FTOs? And I think it's important to see the FTO designation and the secondary designations as two different tracks, just because the United States has not practiced its authority to sanction, secondarily sanction individuals that provide material support does not mean it won't prosecute foreign nationals that provide material support to an FTO designated entity. And to that point, there's also a question that Ben just alluded to um, and actually spoke at length about, which is, well, it seems like the Ukrainian justice system is the better one that's fit to hear these cases. It's unlikely that Russians or Ukrainians that are sympathetic to the separatist movements will find their way into the United States. So shouldn't we just let Ukraine handle these cases? And when it's time... For Ukraine to have its truth and reconciliation process when the war comes to a close, uh, it will be important for Ukraine, I think, to have some support from a partner that respects the rule of law, that has a sound justice system, that can basically take on some of these cases and help the Ukrainian people see that justice is served with some of these individuals that have provided material support during the war to the separatist groups i think that perhaps one of the the biggest argument that warrants attention is that by designating the militia groups as foreign terrorist organizations that might actually spur calls to designate russia as a state sponsor of terrorism and that makes sense right where Russia is the one that's providing the sponsorship for the Donetsk and Luhansk people's militias to operate. If we were to designate them as FTOs, it would then logically be consistent to designate the sponsor as a state sponsor of terrorism. I think that that argument might be blown out of proportion a little bit. To my understanding, designating a group as an FTO does not necessarily follow that the state that sponsors them will also be designated as a state sponsor of terrorism. So Ben earlier mentioned the Haqqani Network. The Haqqani Network has close ties to the Pakistani intelligence forces. And yet when President Obama designated the Haqqani Network as an FTO, he made very clear that Pakistan would not be designated as a state sponsor of terrorism. And so President Biden has also made very clear right now that He has no intention of designating Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism, that we are not in the business of doing that, that, you know, we're not trying to send a message to Putin that we're in a a world of regime change, because one of the ways to delist a country from SST designation is by um, having the leadership change altogether. And President Putin can get the wrong idea if the United States were to designate Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. And I think President Biden has is 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 really not trying to go down that route. So although there are good arguments against an FTO designation, specifically how practical is it? How much will it accomplish? Uh, will it spur an SST designation? I, I just don't know if they hold enough water. Relative to the benefits that they would bring. So,
2: I want to pause really quickly on this because there actually have been calls for Russia to be designated as a state sponsor of terrorism. So, you mentioned that, you know, Biden has said that this is not something that we are interested in doing because it might imply to Putin that we are interested in regime change. But what is, what are the rationales? You know, what, what are the responses to people who say, no, Russia deserves to be designated as a state sponsor of terrorism. And so sure, if, if FTO designation for the militias is going to help make the case for that to happen, then let's go for it.
0: Yeah, so I actually think that this may be one of the best arguments for designation uh, of the groups. That is, uh, for a variety of reasons, the Biden administration is not interested in an SST designation of Russia. And there are, uh, there are actually a variety of reasons for that that range from just com- making diplomacy more complicated to uh, the implications in litigation for, uh, Russian frozen assets, which it could, uh, uh, under, uh, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, uh, it could actually create real problems if Russia were designated for U.S. ability to freeze, keep frozen Russian assets. You know, and so one possibility is that the downside that Sarafine identifies that you may help build the case for SST designation by designating the sponsored groups as foreign terrorist groups. That is absolutely correct, but it could actually have the opposite effect too. That is, you know, people rightly want the word Russia associated with the word terrorism. Um, because Russia is engaged in a genocidal campaign that involves, you know, all kinds of, uh, civilian harm that are intentional and that are designed to terrorize. This is, you know, strategic bombing, right? Which is something that, you know, some of us thought had been left behind a number, of, a number of decades ago. And so one possibility is that If the administration can't do the SST designation because the collateral costs of it are too high, you know, maybe you let the air out of that balloon a little bit by saying, okay, but the Russian backed groups in Eastern Ukraine, we are going to designate them as terrorist organizations. And so, you know, we're not going to jump the whole River, But we will wade into it. And, you know, part of me thinks that that will just increase the pressure. But part of me thinks, you know, hey, you could really let some air out of this particular balloon and do it in a way that has some significantly constructive effects, like giving yourself jurisdiction to provide all sorts of law enforcement support to the Ukrainians.
2: It seems to me, though, that some of these acts that you were just describing that can certainly constitute terrorist acts can also be construed given the context of an ongoing armed conflict as war crimes, um, which, of course, if we are talking primarily about U.S. jurisdiction to exercise some of its domestic law, you know, we have not, unlike other countries, implemented domestically Charges for committing war crimes in any sort of universal jurisdiction type setup, but is that accurate? Or are there sort of two ways to penalize or or criminalize the acts that you were describing?
0: So the statute does not criminalize terrorist acts. It does not criminalize war crimes. It does not criminalize anything other than the provision of material support to a designated foreign terrorist organization. And so sometimes the material support can be in the form of giving a check or, you know, holding an event and raising money or, you know, as is in a real case in the United States, Engaging in propaganda activity on behalf of the group, right? But sometimes, sure, the material support could be fighting for or committing war crimes on behalf of. So it's not that it's, you know, a sort of surrogate for a war crimes statute, but it it criminalizes genuinely different things that may very well overlap and Look, I don't think the Ukrainians are likely to want to turn over high value war criminals to us, and nor should they. But, you know, people end up in all sorts of parts of the world willingly and unwillingly, stupidly and uh, accidentally. And the question is when some horrible person who did something awful in Mariupol turns up in a US airport, do you want to have the authority to prosecute that person? And to me, that is why we have a material support statute. And the question of whether we should also have some degree of extraterritorial or universal jurisdiction for war crimes, that's a super hard one. We already have this jurisdiction.
2: Right. And Seraphine, is this something that you agree is sort of one of the the key benefits to an FTO designation, namely that, as you mentioned earlier, that the sanctions regime, which is pretty robust, that we already have in place is an economic penalty rather than, you know, the possibility of criminal prosecution and and also that there may be, you know, a universe of people who are not sanctioned, but could be subject to this type of jurisdiction if uh, the militias are given an FTO designation. Are those the main benefits or are there any others that you would point to?
1: I think that's exactly right, Natalie. And I'll also note, to piggyback off of what Ben just noted, that material support is defined quite broadly. And the Supreme Court has made very clear that even material support that is given to a designated FTO for humanitarian purposes, for example, or for peaceable purposes, would still constitute material support under the statute and would then allow the United States to prosecute the individual or the foreign national. And so I think that's right, that it's it's this broad jurisdictional power that the United States has over foreign nationals that material support is defined so broadly. Any sort of support Essentially, that's rendered to an FTO would bring it under the United States' jurisdictional authority.
2: All right. We're going to leave it there. Serafine, Ben, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell and your audio engineer this episode was Jay Venables of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.